Hello there and welcome to part four of this Pyrotheology 101 course. Uh, so far we have uh, started by looking at this notion of uh, the three-part magic trick. Uh, in part one I looked at the notion of the pledge, the turn and the prestige uh, and that this structure can help us understand something about how human beings desire uh, about um, something, a particular type of suffering that we as human beings have and a particular relationship to lack that we have. The pledge uh, I talked about is as the sacred object, the object that we desire above all else. So about, <laughs> sorry, about to sneeze, there you go. Um, uh, the sacred object, the, which is the object that we desire above all else, the promise of wholeness and completeness, uh, that promise of something that can help us escape um, our yearning and desire to bring homeostasis, balance and oneness into our lives. Uh, the turn is the disappearance of that object and then the prestige is the return of that object. So that was part one, just looking at that three-part structure. And by the way, if you're sensitive to it, you'll notice that three-part structures are being returned to again and again in what I'm talking about. And uh, that's a kind of dialectic structure. Uh, we're going to particularly see it today, but where you have an affirmation, you have a negation, and you have what's called a negation of negation. So I'm going to kind of look at what that means today. But that's what you see in this pledge, turn and prestige. Then in part two, uh, I continue to kind of unfold what that means, particularly looking at the notion of the turn, the disappearance of the sacred object, which by the way, just means our experience of freedom from this frenetic pursuit of something that will fix everything. And this, you can start to see this everywhere. You know, you can see it in our economic structure, in our moral structure, you can see it in our everyday life that we're often, like things move forward. Uh, often we're being led by, we're being led by our nose, by our drive. And as we're being led to in this fiction of something that will fix everything, well, we produce. So it's not unproductive, this frenetic desire, um, but it does lead to all sorts of destructive tendencies and um, ultimately um, can, can lead to uh, all sorts of conflicts with ourselves, with our environment, with each other. So we, we looked at the disappearance of this, uh, um, this sacred object. And then in part three, I connected that with the notion of theology and with the crucifixion. And we looked at how this loss, while it is both traumatic, is also joyful, right? There's a, there's a fear of losing this thing, this drive, but also if we lose the sacred object, there is a type of freedom that we can experience in which we're less um, tied into uh, all of these uh, kind of like uh, the, in every magazine you read and movie and TV show, all of this demand to enjoy, the superego injunction to enjoy, right? It's everywhere. Los Angeles um, has a particular version of it, um, a very, uh, a very uh, well-known version because Hollywood uh, makes so much entertainment that puts out a message and the message is enjoy. So it's not like the usual traditional superego injunction, which says, be nicer to your mum, right? Uh, kind of like uh, read more, eat with your mouth closed, right? Which kind of has a moral injunction. This weird injunction today is the injunction to enjoy. 
and the uh, the condemnation we feel is that we're not able to enjoy enough we're not having a good enough time so we go out into the world we go to we try to go to parties we try to hang out more try to have more fun have more commodities etc etc and feeling that somehow we're not kind of getting enough enjoyment and, and pleasure out of life so um uh, that's a type of superego injunction that many of us feel very profoundly. As I say, in Los Angeles, you, it's palpable. People are trying to pretend to themselves and other people that they're able to have this success of pleasure. And of course, there are times when you have a great night out, you have a, a lot of enjoyment, but it is a type of fantasy that you can somehow keep that going. And the more you try to keep it going, uh, the more anxious you can become. Um, so part three, oh, is it, yeah, the theological dimension of that, of there's a joyful dimension of letting go of finding freedom from that entire structure. So today what I want to do is now kind of move into the third part of the magic trick. I want to look at uh, what can be called the resurrection in theological terms. And in order to do that, we now move from the, uh, the obverse of the coin to uh, the, the reverse of the coin. And we're going to look at the happy reaper. I don't know if you can see that, but the happy reaper. And um, the happy reaper um, has three dimensions, I think, immediately I want people to think of when they see it. Uh, and we can also use the term holy ghost. And so we're going to kind of maybe oscillate between the notion of a holy ghost and a happy reaper. Uh, because a ghost and the, the, the grim reaper are both absences that are present, right? So uh, the, the reaper is the presence of death. So death is an absence, absence, but the grim reaper is the presence of the absence. So whenever we see images of the grim reaper, there is kind of like the presence of death. That's kind of what it means. Uh, see him as a ghost. A ghost is the presence of something that is absent. So in a movie, if you see a ghost, someone has died, a little girl was drowned or something, and then the ghost is the presence of the absence of the child. Um, they are in a state that is neither affirmation or negation. So if you're, you know, I never mentioned the, the affirmation, negation and negation of negation. Think of it in terms of a ghost. Someone is alive, that's an affirmation, it's a presence, they exist, they disappear, they die. That is a negation of life, that is in existence. And then the ghost is the presence of the absence, the negation of negation. They are the uh, presence of the absence. Um, so the happy reaper is um, an absence that is present and that is joyful, right? Uh, same thing with the, the Holy Ghost. Is the, a ghost is the, an absence that is present, that is holy, that is um, um, something kind of like not profane, or some, something powerful, right? Something trans transcendental. So when you see the Happy Reaper, that's the kind of the three notions that I want to explore. Um, again, the the idea that there's an absence, the loss, but there's a presence in that absence, and that present absence is a type of joy. Now, to make sense of that, we can think about love. Uh, love is a good example because love is not an object. It's not an object that exists as such, 
like other things, like other objects in the world. Uh, it is not sublime in the sense of something that you can hold in your hand that's incredible and amazing and it transforms your life. And it's not a meaningful object, right? It's not something that um, you grasp in order to have meaning. But in giving yourself over to love, uh, there's a sense in which it is the most existent, sublime and meaningful reality of all. So uh, when you love somebody, uh, they come into existence. So love doesn't exist, but love calls things into existence. When you see someone that you love, they are called out, they stand against the background of everything else, because that's what exist means, to stand out from the background. So the person exists. Um, they are sublime, right? They, we see them as something that is in their, in their finitude, in their life, something incredible. And they are meaningful, right? Whenever you love a cause, for example, that cause brings meaning into your life. And I think I talked about that example in the first part. So I just want to return to that notion of love. Love is a type of absence that is present. Um, that is kind of a non-existent, but actually feels like um, more existent than other things in the, in the world. Right. So that is kind of this three-part structure. Um, another way to put this is that uh, there is a type of failure in success uh, of getting the sacred object. Whenever you go out into the world and try to get whatever it is that you think will make you whole and complete. The very success of your project is a type of failure. You get it and what you're left with is ashes, is the fossil of something that doesn't exist, that it never existed. But if you go deeper into that failure, you find that the failure turns into success. So there's a there's a failure hard baked into success and there's a success that is hard baked into failure. When you go into this loss, it is, it is initially, as I say, a type of failure, a type of like, uh, you know, you lose the very thing that you wanted to grasp. But by just changing your perception towards that failure, you find that in that failure, there's a type of success. So that is the journey that, that we're taking. And to live in the experience of the happy reaper is to live in this space where you feel a type of lack, but that lack is joyful. That lack is generative. It's what connects you to the world. It's what creates yearning in you. It's what generates love and desire in you. Um, and the failure constantly to get something that's going to like fix everything is actually where you find depth and meaning and purpose. Um, so one way of thinking about that is the figure of the rebel, right? Uh, and I'm borrowing this from Camus. Uh, so for Camus, broadly speaking, you can talk about uh, the conservative figure uh, and the revolutionary figure and the figure of the rebel. Uh, the conservative figure is someone who wants to conserve. They want to go back. They want, they, there's almost like there's a golden age, a utopia that lies behind you. And if you can only move back to that, then you will find 
uh, peace and you will find like for yourself uh, or for society so maybe it's you're you're thinking of like when you were a child you were so much happier when you were a child or in that last relationship or there was a time in history in which everything was great like in the 1950s or whatever or there was a time in the past way way back when everything was one before we became civilized and got into the industrial world and kind of like lost touch with with the nature whatever it is there is something that we have lost that we want to return to and so for the conservative figure there is a certain unhappiness hegel calls this an unhappy consciousness and he calls it unhappy consciousness because there's this sense in which um, there's something missing, there is an absolute, there is something unchangeable, something, an essence to the world, something powerful that you don't have, that lies in the past and so you're unhappy because you can't get it. But you're trying to get it, you're trying to maybe kind of recreate it in some way. And actually some people even recreate their lives. In the past maybe they live a kind of 1950s life in their, in their house, you know, they, they somehow try to relive or some people don't move on in relationships and they continue to try to relive the past or remember it in some way. So they're always orienting themselves to trying to get back something that they feel they lost. Then there is the revolutionary figure. And the revolutionary figure is looking ahead. They've got an eschatological dimension. They are looking to a future utopia uh, that they're working towards. And again, they are caught up in an unhappy consciousness because they feel that something is wrong. Um, they experience the suffering in the world and the difficulties in the world, just like the conservative does. And their solution is to move forward towards a utopia that lies ahead. If the conservative wants to get rid of the contradictions and the deadlocks by moving back, the revolutionary wants to overcome those contradictions by moving forward. And again, they live in a, t in a type of unhappiness. Um, now, uh, I think I talked about this. There, there's a type of happiness within the unhappiness, right? We just can't enjoy our enjoyment, right? There's, there, there's something that we're getting out of these experiences, but they are experienced as suffering to us. Now, in contrast to these two positions, and by the way, if either figure gets the utopia that they're looking for, it's anything but a utopia. For the conservative, if they're, for example, able to set up a community that uh, rejects industrialization and technology and they move to LA and they set up a commune and they, they try to live the way they imagine people lived before civilization you know, uh, took root, uh, what happens is generally um, you're going to find that that falls into a bit of disaster uh, and the same with the revolutionary if they're able to create the world that they want uh, often the leader of the revolution finds themselves you know being their head being cut off by the guillotine that they made right in contrast to both those figures there is the rebel and the rebel is one who in some respects uh, they, they share a lot in common with both the conservative and the revolutionary in that they feel the struggles and the difficulties of life and they feel the injustices of the world and they, they see that things need done. Um, 
they're probably more like the revolutionary in the sense of moving forward, um, although that's not necessarily the case, but they feel that, that struggle. They feel the tensions and the contradictions and the deadlocks in the current situation. But they do not fall into a type of uh, utopian thinking. Uh, they're not caught up in the idea that they can overcome these deadlocks and if they overcome them, then they can be happy. So the rebel is a figure who overcomes unhappy consciousness by seeing that in the very loss, in the very absence of the utopia, there is a type of utopic dimension. Now in theological terms, this is the idea that the kingdom of God is not ahead of you or behind you or around you, but within you. In the struggle of love itself, in the work of love, the kingdom of God is there. Um, so that's kind of like a theological way of, of saying this. The rebel enjoys their lack of enjoyment. They, they enjoy the, the struggle. And the most famous example of this is uh, Marlon Brando in is it Along the Waterfront, is that what it's called? Uh, where he's part of the, the Black Rebel Motorcycle Gang, the Black Re Rebel Motorcycle Club. And he's in a cafe and Marlon Brando is talking to this, uh, this uh, woman who's serving coffee. And, and she says to the biker, Johnny, says, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? And Johnny says, what do you got? Right? And you can see the smiles, like they're, they're rebels. They're to say, what have you got? This is, this is the enjoyment of life, is to struggle with life and to rebel and to, to, to kind, of like, kind of work for change without falling into the unhappy consciousness of like some sort of future that you have to, you can't be happy until you get. It's, in, in some respects, you could say it's the difference between revolution and insurrection. An insurrectionary community lives the future um, that they want to see, but in a sense, living the future as in they are a type of aroma of the kingdom of God by simply struggling for the kingdom of God, right? In, and we talked about this in the last part. It's not seek and you shall find, it's seeking is finding. Knocking and the door is, is opening, asking and you are receiving. They are intertwined like heat and light. Now, interestingly, Todd McGowan, who's a theorist I deeply respect, he, um, he's critical of the figure of the rebel. And uh, he's critical of the figure of the rebel because he sees the rebel as someone who's always defining themselves against the structures of authority and against institutions. And so the rebel isn't really free because instead of enjoying struggle and, and loving a cause and getting involved in something and with people and finding depth and meaning in that act. Uh, McGowan sees Camus' rebel as always defining themselves in opposition to. So when you define yourself in opposition to things, you're still caught up with them. So if, for example, you uh, are an adult and you're still kind of rebelling against your parents, not consciously, but unconsciously, you're acting in ways that you think they would not like. Um, you end up maybe going out with people that they, you think un unconsciously they wouldn't like or taking a job that they wouldn't like. Um, you're kind of not embracing your own desire. You haven't found a way to countersign your own desire. Your desire is still very much caught up in the desire of the other. Uh, same as you're trying to impress them, right? You're, you kind of haven't fully 
uh, countersigned your desire, embraced your fate. And uh, Todd McGowan, I think, is totally right in that. If the rebel is just defining themselves against something, then that is not the, the free figure that I'm talking about. Um, and the difference between McGowan and myself in this is simply that, that I think the rebel is the one who has freed themselves from this always defining themselves in reaction to which means the rebel can be found anywhere the rebel can be found within government just as much as they can be found outside of government just like the prophet can be found within the institution and outside the institution um, because it's a type of uh, it's a type of attitude right if it's always defining against then it will never be in the position of the institution. It will never embrace positions of power, so it will be more anarchic. Um, but if it's not defined itself against, then it's freer to be within the corridors of power and outside the corridors of power, right? So it's more of an attitude of embracing the struggle. Okay, so that's the first thing I kind of want to say is that um, this notion of the happy reaper is... Uh, an image of an absence that is present that is joyful and we see that type of figure in the figure of the rebel um, and if we had more time i would want to connect that as well with with jesus himself as potentially a, a figure of rebellion um, in that kind of way and i've connected obviously with the kingdom of god that notion being within you um, and seeking and finding um, now what i want to do is I kind of want to move into uh, why is this, what can the church do to help us become a rebel, right? Because part of what I'm doing with power theology, the reason why I'm in theology and is partly because theology is theory and practice. Now, all academic disciplines have a theoretical and a technological dimension, right? So you look at... Uh, uh, well, psychoanalysis is a good example. You've got the theory of the subject and desire, and then you have the couch, right? And you have what goes on in the clinic. But uh, in mechanical engineering, you have what you, you learn in the university, and then you build bridges and or whatever. And architecture, the theory of architecture, but the technology is the building of buildings. Um, yeah, chemistry, there is the theoretical dimension, and then there is the creation of potions and poisons. Uh, biology, you study biology and then there are vets and there are doctors, right? Uh, in theology, there is basically theology might, you could describe it as systematic reflection on the notion of the absolute. And then the technology is about how, how we uh, kind of interact with that absolute. Um, now, radical theology is how do we free ourselves from a certain view of the absolute, <laughs> but it still circles around this notion of the absolute. So in theology, there is the theory, and we've been doing the theory, and then there is the practice, there is the technology. And what I'm going to do to try to clarify the difference between paro-theology and the confessional church is I'm going to outline three different liturgical structures, three different things that happen on the Sunday morning uh, at a church, and uh, contrast what happens within the conservative church, the liberal church, and then what would happen within a radical church. And uh, this might, I think, clarify the difference between confessional and radical theology. And um, it might clarify my critique, it definitely clarified my critique of confessional theology and 
clarify what I think the role of the church is, because I do believe the church has a role, right? And it's not um, to create community or to praise and worship or to collect money for charity or anything like anything like that, right? If you want community, there's lots of places you can go for community, church being one of them maybe, but also you can go to a football club, you can go to a coffee shop. Um, if you go to sing, you can sing at concerts and musicals and churches. Um, but I believe the church does have a role and it's a very, very particular role. Um, uh, and it's to undergo the death of God. It is the community in which you undergo the loss of the sacred object and then on the aftermath of that, you live into the collective of the Holy Ghost. Um, and I want to argue that conservative and liberal technologies, churches and liturgies, they avoid the death of God. They are avoiding this journey that I've been describing over these different parts. And then I want to look at how radical theology and particularly paratheology attempts to draw you into this journey that we've been talking about. Um, the, the word for it is transformance art. Um, I got that phrase from somebody who came to an icon gathering, the community that I was part of, and uh, a guy called uh, Jailo, I think, and he wrote um, a review of icon and he said, icon feels like performance art, uh, or perhaps we should call it transformance art. And that just that term kind of caught on among the community, so we started to talk about transformance art. Um, so to set this up, um, I want to start with um, uh, something that Darren Brown, who's a magician from the UK, did. Actually, I did a version of this, so I'll talk about what I did. I took the idea from Darren Brown. Um, I was speaking at a group in Belfast, a mostly secular group, and to start off. Uh, I did an experiment and I said to everybody, okay, hands up who doesn't believe in gods and demons and angels, all of that, right? And the vast majority put up their hands. And I kind of double checked, you don't believe in gods, you don't believe in angels, you don't believe in demons, you don't believe in kind of magical powers. And go like, no, it's a very secular uh, audience. And then, and some of you will have heard this story, um, then I pulled out an envelope from my pocket and on the envelope um, there was um, this curse and I asked people to take out their phones and get a picture of someone they really love on their phone. Once they'd done that I said okay this is a, a satanic curse from like the 1600s and it's designed to make terrible things befall your enemy and the idea is you think about, you picture the person that you want the terrible things to happen to you and then you say the curse and so I said okay could somebody come up and say the curse over the person on their on their mobile phone and nobody moves so it's a group of about I think there was 60 it was a room that could contain I think 60 or 70 people and it was jammed 70 people nobody moves and I'm looking around and going okay hold on a second right you told me you don't believe in God or the devil or angels or demons or anything like that so surely somebody's happy to come up here and just say this curse, right? Again, nobody moves. And then I started to ask why. So I, there was a friend of mine there, Adam, and um, he's, you know, doesn't believe in any of this stuff. Uh, and I said to him, will you come up and do it? 
And he was like, no, 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 I wouldn't do it. And I asked him why, and I thought he would say, oh, my wife would kill me if she heard that I'd done it. You know, like I'd set a curse over her or, or over one of my kids or something like that. So I said, well, look, say it over me, right? And he, he, he wouldn't, he was like, no, no, I won't. Now, Adam is the most kind of like un kind of mystical person you could imagine, right? Doesn't believe in any of that stuff, but suddenly he was like very concerned about saying this curse over me, right? And, um, and basically everyone was nervous about something that I printed off the internet, changed a few words to make it sound more sinister, right? Didn't, that didn't really mean anything. Um, and so then I was talking to them about going like, it's interesting because sometimes like we've let go of superstition, but superstition hasn't let go of us and it's in there. And I, I talked to them about how I used to be an evangelist and I used to, to go out and can convert people to confessional religion. And I said, it was easy um, because all you mostly had to do was uncover someone's anxiety and then they would do all of the work, right? The stuff is generally in there already. And uh, you just have to create enough anxiety and then the superstition comes out. Uh, now, the reason why I did that little experiment at the beginning was uh, I wanted to draw the difference between what we think we believe and what we think consciously and our unconscious and what's going on in our unconscious. Um, and interestingly, Paul Tillich, um, in a very good essay called Two Types of Philosophy of Religion, he, he said that uh, theology uh, is a discipline that is designed to protect us from the twin uh, dangers of superstition and scientism. So superstition on one side with magical thinking, etc., etc., and and scientism on the other, which is the reduction of the world to you know pure cause and effect, uh, atoms bouncing against atoms. And uh, somehow theology is a discipline to protect against both. Because somebody might respond to this and go, well, well, look, look, everyone here secretly believes in God. But they don't believe in God in um, a properly theological way because I don't think any believer would think that because you said something off the internet while looking at a picture of someone you love, God is going to come down and, and make them have a road accident or the devil's going to suddenly let loose on them, right? Um, that's not, a, that's not a, a theological notion of God. You won't find that in the Scholastics and Aquinas or Anselm or any of the, these people. So it's not that secretly these people all believe in some sort of like a theological notion of the absolute. It just shows that this superstition is alive and well in secular world as well as, as uh, the kind of confessional world. So to give that example, then I want to, um, oh, and I'll, I'll give a little bit of a framework for maybe beginning to understand how it works and then we'll move into the three liturgies. Um, the same thing goes in analysis. In analysis, you uh, may uh, know that your father has died. Your father has physically died, but your father can remain a powerful influence inside you. They have died in reality, but they haven't died in you. And in other words, their voice has been injected and internalized into you. And so through analysis, you can find maybe you're always trying to please your father. Um, you're always kind of doing things in relation to your father, seeing yourself in relation to how you think your father saw you. Even though your father does, is not alive, your father remains alive in you. 
And it's actually worse because if your father was alive, your father might say to you, listen, wise up, don't, don't keep living your life in relation to what you think I think, right? But they're dead, they, they can't say that to you, so they're more alive than they were when they were alive, right? Because when they're alive, they're alive as just a regular person. Now they're inside you. And part of what happens is when you go to analysis, if you're in, say that this is a situation you're in, you're, you're living your life in relation to childhood issues with your mother and your father, um, you go to an analyst, kind of three stages occur. The first stage often is you sit down and you see this analyst just as a normal person like you, right? They have a life just like you, they have a family or they're single or whatever, right? They may be an expert in their field, but they are just another human being. And this can be called the level of the imaginary. Uh, the other is an image like yourself, just a normal person just like me that you can love or hate, you can have competition with, you can desire, right? Uh, but therapy doesn't really kick off at that level. Um, now, in other areas, like doctors or whatever, you don't, you don't need to think your doctor is anything special. They're an expert and they can do their job. But in therapy, something else has to occur. So what's the next level? Well, the next level is often what will occur uh, for kind of more neurotic patients is that very gradually the analyst, or it can be instantly, takes on a symbolic role. The analyst becomes through transference. You transfer an earlier relationship onto the relationship with the analyst. So uh, your analyst becomes a type of proxy for your father or for your mother or for your sister or your brother, right? So you don't even really notice this, but you start to treat them in that way. And it's why um, uh, if you suddenly kind of like see your analyst out shopping in, uh, in Tesco or something like that, it can be quite shocking because they're, they're suddenly a real person, right? Or if you see too much into their life, you know, they've got a, a, a social media presence or you can look them up or you can whatever, you get details about their life. It can kind of like be strange because they've kind of very subtly become a stand-in for a type of relationship you had with the other. Now, when this happens, that's good because you can start to relive earlier relationships in the present, in the analytic setting. And that's, that's important. It's not about talking about your past relationships so much as living it out in the, in the clinical back and forth. And that's called the symbolic, uh, because you're kind of treating the other as a symbol, just like a child might see the, the teacher as a symbol of a parental authority. So sometimes a child will put up their hand and say, mummy, instead of teacher, right? And it's very embarrassing for them, but it tells you that, that oh, they're treating that as a parental symbolic authority. The third level of analysis is, which can be called the real, is where the analyst isn't just a symbolic stand-in for somebody else that you're transferring the relationship onto, but the analyst kind of uh, uh, anchors themselves within you. So you start to dream about them maybe. You, you, they're, they're part of your internal fantasy life. So you have a dream about your, your, your mother, but your analyst's face is there. And so you're kind of confusing these, these, these two in some way, some, some way unconsciously. 
Now, when you get to this level, real change can begin to happen slowly. Uh, so for example, someone goes to an analyst um, and they're transferring their relationship with their father onto the analyst. Eventually, at first the analyst is just like them, then they start to treat the analyst like their father, thinking that the analyst is judging them, thinking that the analyst is, is disappointed in them, right? Not kind of consciously, but, but just acting as if the analyst would think that. And the analyst might be very gradually going, oh, it's interesting that you think I would judge you on that. You know, tell me more about that, right? So the analyst isn't becoming the father. They're just allowing you to put all of that onto, onto them, right? You're projecting something onto them. And then the third step is where they actually become, in a way, the externalization of the internal father. They are now kind of like, standing in that space and at this point they're not acting like the father they're not judging you they're not disappointed in you they're meeting you every week they care about you um, they they're trying to help you and they're mute right they're not giving you any advice they're not trying to like tell you what to do or anything like that which you can either accept or reject or whatever they're just signing things out and in a way, what happens is the father has died in, in real life, right? But has not died within you. But the analyst, who is basically a mute, idiotic father, not giving you the advice, not judging you, not doing anything, begins to die as an internal reality, right? So you begin to experience a freedom from this presence. Okay, so bear that in mind because that will make more sense when we get to the third liturgy. Right, so how does this all connect? Right, let's start with a conservative liturgical structure. Within conservatism, generally belief is of a high value, right? What do you believe? Uh, do you, can you affirm a certain statement of beliefs? Can you countersign a certain statement of beliefs? Are you part of that community, right? So belief is very important. Now it's, now it's important to say that it's not believing the belief that's important. It's just having the beliefs and verbalizing them and kind of like um, giving yourself over to them in some way. Uh, an example of this is in the Omega course that I run, which is like the Alpha course, but without giving you the right answer at the end of each night, right? So groups get together, we do a different subject every week. And so say it is on the Bible, you would have like, very briefly, we'd look at a very good conservative reading of the biblical text. We'd look at a very good liberal reading of the biblical text. And then we'd look at a very good kind of like, kind of outside kind of radical or whatever look at the text. We would kind of, so we cover those three. So maybe it'd be anti-right, somebody like Marcus Borg, and then somebody like uh, Altizer or something like that. And, um, uh, or some kind of literary one. There's, who's the guy who wrote God a biography? But anyway, some, something like that. And then we would talk and we would chat over food and drinks about what we used to believe, what we currently think, and just have an interesting discussion. Um, now the Alpha Course does something similar, but at the end then they would maybe put on the video that would tell you the right answer. <laughs> but this was, this was about kind of having the conversation and seeing the conversation as the type of answer that we're passionate about engaging with these discussions. Um, which by the way is, 
within a conservative model, you can often see that it's a believe, um, kind of behave, belong model. So believe, you believe the right, the right things, the, the same things as a community. Behave, which is then you, you repent, you say the sinner's prayer, right? And then belong, you enter into the community, which is very different from kind of a Jewish tradition, which is like more of a belong, behave, believe model, which is like a family model. You belong in the family first. You behave, you, you engage in the, the rituals of the family life, right? You go on walks at certain times, you eat at certain times, you play games on certain times. And then belief comes later. And belief is the third and least important. At first, it's very similar to the parents, then maybe diametrically opposed, and then somewhere in the middle. But in the conservative model, believe, behave, belong. Um, uh, the Omega course is based on the kind of belong, behave, believe. So the belong is you come to the, the group uh, because you're passionate about these kind of conversations. The behave is simply engaging in a certain set of shared rituals, very basic. We have the three positions. We talk about them over food and drinks. We end the conversation by talking personally. We try to connect with our personal kind of journeys and then we leave. And be belief is kind of like, yeah, we may agree, we may disagree, you know, but um, we kind of end up somewhere. Um, so at one of these groups, uh, we were doing the notion of the resurrection, looking at the resurrection. And it, uh, during the conversation, uh, this woman said, you know, I, I don't go with the whole physical resurrection thing. I used to, but I don't find it plausible. You know, I, I think it's more of a, a metaphor or um, it points to some sort of spiritual reality, whatever. And then somebody else said, well, you know, I actually think that, you know, it is something literal happened. We don't know what happened, but there's something uh, kind of literal about this notion that's important. And then someone else said, you know, weirdly, I've never thought about it, right? I've read the text and I've talked about it, but I've never ever really thought whether I think it's literal or metaphorical or whatever. And we have an interesting conversation. But at the end of the night, uh, the woman seemed a little bit preoccupied. And as I was talking to her, she said, oh yeah, listen, it's kind of weird. I feel a bit bad about what I said. I said, well, what do you mean? And she went, well, I'm an elder in my church and I'm in the worship team and I work with the, the coffee shop, fair trade coffee shop in the church. And she said, the problem is, she said, I've believed in a literal resurrection all my life. I've been a pretty conservative person, but um, I went through all this cancer treatment in the last year too. And I had a lot of time to think and a lot of time to reflect. And she said, you know, a lot of things have changed and now I'm not sure what I think about say something like the resurrection. And she said, but if I told my community that, uh, I'd probably be taken off the eldership team. I probably would be taken off the worship team, right? I'd still be able to do the fair trade coffee shop, right? Because <laughs> that's not as important as singing songs. Right? But uh, uh, she said, There's that, I wouldn't be able to say it. And as we talked, I asked the question, I said, well, is it because you have, you, you question the literal resurrection, it's the problem, or would the problem just be saying it, i.e., do you not think that other elders have had similar questions and thoughts? And she was like, well, I'm sure they have. Going, yeah, if they have, and you're pretty sure that, that a lot of people in your community have, then the issue is not the belief and the questions, but rather the point that you shouldn't share them. And that's very, very common within the conservative church is these evangelical churches, for example, that have worship teams that are just hard guns, musicians in the local area who come in to sing the songs, 
or we all know ministers have doubts about all sorts of things, don't believe half of what they say. You know, most of us know that, but we do want to know that we know it. As long as everyone pretends in the room, uh, we get the psychological security out of it. So the beliefs are less about certainly actually believing them. There are some churches that are like that, but they're more like um, very extreme types of churches, like snake handling churches. Most conservative churches and evangelical churches, it's not so much about believing the beliefs, it's just having the beliefs and using them as a way to protect yourself from going into doubt, complexity, to contradiction, deadlock, right? Um, so the conservative church, the liturgy often has a real emphasis on belief. And so if we go back to the, the example of me with that, commute, that group of people, if half of them were religious, half of them might say, well, I wouldn't say the prayer, right? Because yes, I believe that if you say things like that, bad things can happen, right? I wouldn't say a curse because I actually believe it. Um, now, the, the fact is that's superstition, right? So that's not in the, the, the theological tradition. That would be seen as, a, as a, a superstitious notion of God. But definitely, if you were a conservative Christian in that room, you would probably be more inclined to say no to saying the curse, because you believe that it would be something bad. Within a liberal um, uh, liturgy, it's different. Belief is not where you get your psychological safety from. Uh, so you can disbelieve that stuff. You can actually mock it. You can think it's stupid that people would have superstitious notions. You can question all sorts of things. Um, however, the liturgical structure itself takes on absolute significance. So you can doubt the existence of God, you can you know, ridicule superstition, all of that. But if you move the altar five feet to the right, all hell breaks loose, right? And what happens is the liturgical structure is like a type of security blanket. A security blanket is an object that does not um, hide you from some sort of intellectual truth. It protects you from the power of that intellectual truth. So if you have a kid with a security blanket and they're in a party with adults and they're walking around with their security blanket, they feel safe. Now they know there's a room full of adults, many of them they don't know. But as long as they have the security blanket, they don't feel the power of that belief. They, don't, they feel secure. But you take the security blanket away, they don't gain any extra information. Now they're just not protected from the psychological trauma of the belief that they have. So for the conservative church, the, the security blanket tends to be belief. For the liberal church, the security blanket tends to be the liturgical structure. You go in, you sing certain songs, you engage in certain prayers, you hear the sermon that all affirms a type of deus ex machina God that Bonhoeffer talks about, the kind of superstitious God. So even if you don't believe in that God at all, you still get the psychological power from it. Or if a kid, like I had a friend, um, and her child was asking, does the, does the tooth fairy ex exist, right? Getting to that age. And she felt really bad. She was like, I better tell him. And um, she goes, well, actually, you know, no. And she found this very sad and traumatic to tell him. 
but he was fine. He was just going like, well, do I still get the money, right? Uh, but for her, it was traumatic because she didn't believe in the tooth fairy, but through the belief in the other, through the belief of the child, she got the psychological pleasure of the belief without having to believe it. So in a way, the other for the liberal is the church. We don't necessarily believe the stuff, but the, the, the liturgy believes on our behalf. In contrast to that, uh, transformance art is a liturgy that is designed to draw you into the experience of the loss of the security blanket. Um, not trying to either keep it in the beliefs or in the practices, but rather help you enter into doubt, unknowing, ambiguity, deadlock, uh, right into the heart of that. And so what happens is, uh, transformance art has doubt, complexity, ambiguity and contradiction built into the, the words, built into the music, built into the prayers and the poetry, built into the, the various rituals themselves. And what that does is it's not about tearing away the security blanket. Um, it's about containing the contradiction within the structure itself. The structure um, has doubt and unknowing and ambiguity built into it. So to return for a moment to that example I used of the, the person in therapy, who they go to the therapist, they start at the level of the imaginary. The therapist is just like me. Then they move to the symbolic where they treat the therapist as say their father. And then into the real, where the therapist isn't just a screen upon which we project stuff, but rather becomes an incarnation of the father. So they are an incarnation of the father, and then they die in reality. They die in front of us. They kind of like they show the impotence in front of us, which then links back into us and begins to free us. So too within transformance art, people come in, maybe they treat what's going on it's just oh this is just interesting these are musicians and poets and artists and speakers doing interesting work but then if it's successful for the majority of people who are involved they without even knowing it the liturgical structure becomes the symbolic uh, manifestation of god the father right so the liturgy becomes the uh, externalization of our notion of god now this happens for everybody in a conservative and liberal as well, right? You go from the imaginary to the real. And now basically the minister, for example, is not just saying something as a person. They are saying something as a representation of the divine, as a proxy or avatar of God. And then the third stage is when you get to the real, where the liturgical structure is not simply an avatar of God but rather an incarnation of God. Um, it's somehow now there is an anchoring between the, the liturgical structure and the individuals that are participating. Now at this point, you can instigate change. Within a conservative and a liberal liturgical structure, what happens is the liturgical structure continues to advocate for uh, the deus ex machina, the, God, the religious God, um, but within radical theology, it begins to allow that 
God, that absolute to die, to crumble by showing its internal contradictions. Now, this brings us back to the last part where I talked about the crucifixion as the kind of the, the what did I call it, the self-alienation of God, right? The redoubled kenosis, where contradiction is found in the heart of God. So transformance art actually uh, kind of acts that out in the liturgical structure, whereas the conservative and liberal traditions don't. What they do is they give in to the temptation to give the congregation what they want, right? So Lacan once said that the analyst has to resist the temptation to give the analyzand what they want. And what the analyzand wants in analysis is for the analyst to say everything's going to be great, to give them wholeness, completeness, to kind of like get them, get them working again, give them their lost object, the sacred object of, in some way. And Lacan is saying, well, that's the very temptation you have to resist, right? You'll feel the analyzand wanting you to give them like, good advice, really wanting them to give you good advice, really wanting you to give them some answer, right? I was in that myself when I did analysis many, many years ago. There was a point where I was thinking about going home for a bit. And I was really looking for advice from the analyst about what I should do. And it was a, a real key moment for me where I was like, should I go back uh, for this week or should I not? And I said to the analyst who never gave any advice, <laughs> uh, I was going like, listen, just this once, just this once, it would really help me if we talked this through and I kind of got a sense of what I should do, what would be the healthiest thing for me to do. And he said, oh, t so tell me about your dreams, right? And I th it was fascinating because like he must have felt so much profound um, temptation to give me some advice, especially because he probably could have given me good advice. And that's what I was demanding with everything in me. I was basically shouting at him going like, I'm paying you, I just, this once, just help me, help me give me some counsel on this. And he resisted the temptation. That was very, very impressive. And um, in the same way, the priest will feel this profound find temptation to give people the religious God, right? Especially if someone's died and someone's looking for that deus ex machina God to kind of make everything good or the funeral service or whatever. Like there is this profound demand being made. Just give us the religious God. He says, everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. But we need to be trained well enough to know how to resist that temptation. Kind of why? Well, because that giving into that temptation in the long run is going to do more damage than good, right? You have to resist that temptation in order for one notion of the absolute to begin to die, for us to experience the death of God so that we can enter into the community of the Holy Ghost. And this is where, you know, say conservative and I would say liberal uh, liturgies give into that temptation in different ways one in belief and the other in, in the kind of the art, the practice, the liturgy. But radical theology is the one that says, um, that, that creates a safe container to go into that anxiety, to feel it, to bring it, to keep it on the surface bubbling and not put a lid on it. Not to exacerbate it too much, because that's not helpful, nor to, to crush it, but to allow it to be basically the, the, the transformance art liturgy is a non-anxious presence. So it's a non-anxious presence 
that allows the anxiety in the room to be and contains that within the liturgical structure itself. And I'll give you one example, uh, and then we can kind of close up this seminar. Uh, just one example from ICON, where we did a service called uh, Sins of the Father. And the first time we did it was late at night in this bar called the Menagerie. And you went down these steps. It was a stormy, kind of windy, rainy night, and uh, typical of Belfast. And you went down these stairs. When you came into the pub, it was dark, nice little lights here and there. There was the bar, there was a DJ playing music. And over the music, there was the words, when I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was um, in prison, did you visit me? And this music is going and the words are happening. All around the bar, there are broken wine glasses, like about a hundred different wine glasses. Uh, people come in, they're chatting, getting a drink. And then to begin, the, the music dims. And someone comes up to the front and they give a parable. And they say, uh, on the last day, all of humanity is brought before the judgment seat. There they see God on the chair. And they, say, and they see a great book. And the book of life is opened up. And humanity look into the book to see if God's name is written. And they say in one voice, when I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was in prison, did you come and visit me? And then what proceeded to happen over the course of the evening was different people came up and told difficult stories about their lives and about things breaking down and um, whether it was beliefs or relationships or whatever, just difficult and beautiful stories, sometimes actually funny stories, right? Uh, and there was poetry about it, there was a song, song about it. And at a certain point, everybody was invited to take a pencil that was on the table and a little fragment of paper that then they were dotted around and just write some time when they felt God had sinned against them. And whether or not people believed in God who were in the room, everybody knew what that meant. It was like some time where you felt you were honest, you tried to be kind, you tried to do the right thing, and just everything went wrong. Just write it down. And if you didn't exit, uh, we would read it. So they were gathered up, and we re started to read some of these, and they were powerful. People were saying, like, I've got a terminal illness. Uh, I, I'm uh, estranged from my children. Uh, I went through a divorce and have never recovered. You know, I lost everything in a bankruptcy. We read these and then we put them in a fire, which then sent the aroma up into the heavens. And we had a reading from the book of Job, a reading from a, a beautiful small book called Yossel Rakover Talks to God. And um, we created a space where people felt that, that brokenness and that difficulty and that pain. And at the end, we gave everybody a little Tamagotchi toy, a key ring, which is kind of and a reflection about how sometimes we create the thing that we are fighting against or, and we feed this fictional thing. And the point of the gathering was, like, because any church could do that, right? Any church could do pretty much half of that. But at the very end, the temptation would be to say it's going to be okay in some way, either in this life or the next, or to say, well, what you're, you know, um, uh, this is, um, you know, God is bigger than this, and whatever. You try and kind of like put a bow around it or try to close it down. 
But in this gathering, we ended it with the feeling in the air. And doing one of those types of gatherings doesn't do very much, right? But if you're engaged in that type of gathering on a regular basis, doing it in different ways, uh, it starts to have an effect. It starts to change something. And the difference between, say, the conservative, the liberal, and the radical liturgy in this way is the conservative and the liberal liturgy would in some way want to end that by closing the anxiety down. But what we were trying to do in ICON was be a non-anxious presence where the music, the art, the words were able to contain and allow that anxiety to speak and to sublimate. Right? And always you brought some sort of gift away to, to reflect, to keep it and bear it in mind. That is an example of trying to live into the death of God so that you experience the kind of rupturing of this deus ex machina God, this religious God. Not so that you end up with nothing, but that you end up on the other side where somehow God is not the object that you love, but the depth I mentioned in the act of love itself and the struggle of life itself. So we are now all unified in basically our shared struggle because when you were sitting in that room you heard the struggles of these other people you didn't know them by name you didn't know who that piece of paper connected to so it sensitized you to the struggles in the room so uh, so much so that Podrick did a beautiful reflection where he basically I remember the end of it he said like you know if you knew all of the struggles if we t if we turned around to each other now and started to talk and talked about the difficulties in each other's lives, we would be talking all night, right? We would discover that people in this room had overcome such difficult things and were in the midst of such difficult things and had struggled. Like whenever even I look out the window and I see people working on building sites and I go, my goodness, each of these people has struggles with their family, with themselves, with their children, with their parents, with their loved ones, right? Their partner. If you it's not that you can live with that in the forefront of your mind, but you sensitize yourself for a moment and realize we are unified in our struggles and in our lack. And that, keeping that in mind and keeping that at the forefront in this, this space, this desert and the oasis, this once a week or once a month environment, right? This cool, there's hot, dry, quiet environment where we're able to confront that sensitizes us and also can help us feel a type of freedom right you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free you bring this stuff to the surface and you find that just that act of bringing to the surface is itself a kind of freeing act and that is the type of holy ghost environment where god and i is where two or three are gathered together in love where we are gathered together in that experience of shared loss. And this is the thing, right? Three examples, I think I can do three, but maybe two. Um, Burning Man is a good example of a community that gathers around a loss, right? Everybody gathers around the burning of this effigy, right? So you're unified not by a shared set of beliefs, but by a shared letting go. So in Burning Man, there's a temple, and in the temple, you write things that you want to let go of. And again, at the end, you set the temple in flames and everybody watching the temple burn are unified by this shared loss. AA 
is a great example of people who are unified not by what they believe, not by their economic and social status, but they are unified in a shared struggle, a shared loss, a shared difficulty. Because right? there's two ways basically to have a community, one that's centered around what we believe, what we affirm, right? And the other, we are unified in our lack. And in one, you'll always have identitarianism, different communities who believe different things or from different perspectives and backgrounds. But what unifies everybody um, as human subjects is that we are divided subjects, right? So that we experience that within ICON, within the radical community, we experience our shared division, but that also sensitizes us to others outside the community. And so one example is Burning Man, the other is AA, and the third example is the Last Supper, a, a meal around the shared loss, the death of God, the death of God in Christ, right? Christ is the incarnation of God who dies, experiences the self-alienation, just as the radical liturgy is the incarnation of God dying for, again, the people. So what happens in the, the liturgy is a replication, a repetition of what happens in the crucifixion. We identify with the liturgical structure. The liturgical structure becomes the incarnation of the absolute. Then we experience the uh, self-alienation of the absolute through, because the liturgy is embracing doubt, unknowing, rupture, difficulty within its structure. And that then uh, allows that notion of the absolute, the sacred object, to die within us, which is the turn, and then birth as the prestige, which is the return of the sacred and the struggle itself. So I want to finish with a parable and then uh, Q&A. Uh, I guess, so this is a story, um, a silly little story about um, a competition where three people are asked to build a sheep pen and the person who has the best sheep pen, the one that's biggest, that holds the most amount of sheep wins. And there's an architect, there's an engineer, and there's this farmer, Seamus, right? So they've got 24 hours. The architect gets started. She builds a pen that can fit 50 sheep. She thinks that's pretty good. Then the engineer is able to kind of do a few more fancy things with the same material, build a sheep pen that can fit 75 sheep. Whereas Seamus does nothing, right? He just falls asleep in the sun, right? Uh, and then wakes up and realizes he's only got like 10 minutes before the judges are going to judge. And there's the, the architect with their 50 sheep. There's the engineer, 75 sheep. And so he very quickly creates a little box. And he's inside the box. He's painting away, right, with the four little pieces of wood around him. And the judges come up. They look at the other two, and they're impressed. And then they look at Seamus's, and they say, Seamus, that's tiny, right? You wouldn't be able to fit one sheep inside that. And Seamus says, oh, no, he says, you misunderstand. He says, and he says I'm on the outside. You're standing in it. Right? So in other words, the one area in the whole world <laughs> that is outside the sheep pen is the bit the Seamus is in. Um, that is a good way of understanding what the church is within radical theology, is that people look at the temple and they say, oh, look at that, the sacred is in there, you think you have the answer, you think you have the thing that brings wholeness and completeness and all of that. And the answer is the answer of Seamus. It's like, oh no, 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 this is the place of the death of the sacred, right? You're standing in the, in, in the temple of the sacred. You're in the temple of the sacred. This is the one little spot 
that's on the outside of it. This is where we experience the loss of that. And that connects us back to the, what I was doing with that group in Belfast. Is going, they'd be looking at me and going, you're the one who believes in you know, the superstitious, the, the idea that some sacred object is going to fix everything. And my point was, no, no, no. Like, I'm, on the, I'm standing on the outside of that temple. That temple is everywhere. It's all around the world. And there are these little small spaces where you undergo the death of that. That is pyrotheology. You undergo the death of that so that you can experience the resurrection, which as I say, is that experience of the, the presence that arises in the absence. You have the sacred object, it exists, but it doesn't, right? So you feel it as existing, but it doesn't. You then have the negation of the sacred object, which is where it ceases to exist. In other words, you, uh, you kind of encounter the truth that it never did exist. So that's the negation. And then into the third, in that negation, you find an affirmation, you find a presence, you find a meaning, you find a purpose in the struggle itself. And that's the power of theological journey. Okay, let's see if you've got some questions. Um, so Tim says, uh, oh, I wish Pete would have used a different example than the adult chained to be against their parents too close <laughs> too close to home i know <laughs> sometimes when i use these examples they may be close to my home as well i don't think that one but i've used examples before which are definitely close to home for me <laughs> um rob says uh, could we also see camus rebel as someone confronting the absurd by living a meaningful life in spite of the inherent lack of meaning absolutely rob i mean that's and that's very uh that's very like camus so the, the rebel is the one who kind of like, it's not like, it's, it's what John Caputo said beautifully. He said, there may not be any meaning to life, but there is meaning in life. That's like what, that's very uh, Camus sounding. I don't know, I don't know what the um, Camus, um, I don't know how to make his word, <laughs> make it into like Marxist, uh, Camusist. Um, yeah, so Camus very much, the rebel is the one who is a type of protest. Um, against meaninglessness. They embrace the absurd. They, they live a meaningful life in the midst of the experience of a lack of meaning. So yeah, I think that's very good. Um, Kate says, does the image you create of the analyst during transference have a similarity to Baudrillard's four stages of the sign order? By the time you see your father Instead of the analyst, it is pure simulacrum. Okay, so four stages of the sign order. Um, let me see. So there is the, is, are you thinking about how, yes, the sign um, at first connects with reality. Then the sign doesn't have any direct, uh, kind of masks reality. Then the sign masks the absence of reality. And then the sign is uh, completely freed from reality as such right let me think so i've got that in my head could work um uh four seasons. by the time you see your father instead of the analyst it is pure simulacrum i think what you're saying is yeah it's good so by the time you so by the time you get to the real you're saying where i'm treating the analyst as my father um i don't know i'm doing it consciously most of the time in fact it's better that i don't know but as as i'm doing that yes it's I think I understand what you're saying. Sorry, I'm just kind of going through it in my head. Um, that you're saying like that the father is completely divorced from any real father, 
That's what you're saying, yes. So by the time you get to the point where the analyst is standing in that position, yes, there's a sense in which there is no real connection to some real person. In fact, I think I mentioned this, like if your father is still alive and you talk to your father about all this stuff, your father might go, don't be an idiot and try and live your life the way I'm thinking. My goodness, I don't want to be like that. I'm not, I don't want to be some sort of tyrant, you know? So it's, um, it's, it's not, it's not even connected to anything. It's connected to purely how the father has become some sort of psychic reality within you. So yeah, if I, if I understand your question right, and just for everybody else who's watching this or listening, is Kate, I think, is asking that it's, it's not that the father in the example of the analyst is anything like your real father. Um, that's, that question is neither here nor there. Um, it's become something completely divorced from the real father. It's taken on a life of its own. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's right. And then I think you've asked some more questions which might relate to that. Um, so how would you understand liturgy working on a weekly basis? Icon style transformance art. Okay, so this is a different question, but I'll go on to it. Yeah. Icon style transformance art works really well for people already engaged and who are coming monthly, etc. But could it work in a traditional weekly church style meeting with people at vastly different stages of questioning? If the icon style was uh, an intermittent event, how would the other services work? Okay, yeah. Now, Icon was monthly, it was, and it happened about nine times a year, and it was very, it was created by mostly artists, and uh, so not something that you could recreate weekly very easily, but actually transformance art, I think, can work in a weekly setting, and lots of different types of people came to Icon. In fact, I never articulated Icon like this. In fact, I couldn't have. It took me 10 years to begin to reflect on what we were doing. So we were doing this stuff without us under really understanding what we were doing. Um, and there's lots of different people from different places coming. Some people coming from church, some people pastors, some people never been to church. Very few of those people actually, most were coming from either had been to church uh, or went to church or were, and were leaders in church. Uh, so the whole point is you're not trying to give a position, a theoretical position. You're trying to very subtly open up this doubt and unknowing. So for example, if you're, a, if you're a worship leader and you write worship songs, it would be writing worship songs that have mourning in them, that use the, the Psalms, that have doubt and unknowing built into them, uh, or finding songs that are like that, or inviting people in, in the com wider community who sing songs that really embrace those dimensions of, of being human. And it might be the case that, here's one example, uh, you're in a church and you're trying to introduce one of these ideas, this kind of idea. And so the minister spends 12 weeks on a course on the Psalms. And every week the minister draws out how the Psalms have a whole range of emotions, joy and pain and anger and frustration and fidelity and all of these different dimensions and and the music captures that kind of stuff and then what they do is they just change one or two songs in the music and they say this they say like you know so each week we're going to introduce songs that are more like the psalms and uh, even maybe one week we're going to invite this local singer songwriter who we heard uh you know plays at the local pub and we think that she's got a really 
beautiful way of touching on the humanity of loss and difficulty. And so we've invited her to come and do a couple of songs as well. And it's as simple as that. What you're doing over 12 weeks is you're giving people a, the a theological dimension. So you're working with the Psalms. Um, you're then also doing it in the music and then also in the prayers. If you have certain prayers that are said in the, in the church, you try to make sure that some of those prayers have that element within them as well. And you kind of just, by implementing little elements like that, you can be doing this in a very, very subtle way. And uh, every church, every community is going to look different in how, how that's done. But um, it's, and it's not about getting people to think the right way. In many ways, the minister, you shouldn't know what your minister thinks. You're, you're kind of listening every week. But if someone asks you, what does your minister believe? You go like, that's weird. I'm not actually 100% sure. Uh, because, you know, they give a few different views on a biblical text, for example. Say, well, here's three different ways of reading the story of the mustard seed. The mustard seed is planted and creates a great tree in which the birds of the air nest. So one way of reading this is that this mustard seed of love turns into a great institution that houses people, that shelters people. Or birds are often symbols of evil in the Bible and he's taking the seed of God from the earth, etc. So <laughs> this beautiful little seed of love will go into a great institution that will house great evil. Um, and then something else and then going like, you know, how do we, you know, work with these different interpretations, right? So it's all about just very subtly bringing doubt, complexity and ambiguity into the centre of the structure itself. Uh, Timo, what do you find is the difference between the transformational uh, power of psychoanalysis and the transformational power of a liturgical experience? Basically, um, I, I, Paul Tillich said in The Courage to Be, uh, he used an example of the difference between the, the priest and the psychoanalyst, basically. And uh, broadly speaking, he said, like the psychoanalyst starts with the individual and your individual issues, right? Your problems in work, your problems with love, right? Your problems with your family. And they start to look at that. And so if I'm your analyst, we're, we're looking at your concrete historical issues that are getting in the way of you living your life. But as we look at them, actually, instead of the opposite of what people think, sometimes it's like psychoanalysis makes you more and more internal looking at yourself and, you know, you get lost in kind of a type of narcissistic kind of self-reflection. Um, actually, what happens is gradually that problem becomes wider and bigger and you see that the problem you're dealing with in work is connected actually with, with your relationship with your partner, which is actually connected to your relationship to your family, which is eventually connected to what it means to be a person living in contemporary society, to what it means to be human, right? So it widens you out, widens you out, widens you out. So you move from what can be called the ontic, which is your particular issue in reality, to the ontological, to the nature of reality itself. The priest can be seen as starting on the other side. They're talking about the big things, the absolute. They're talking about, they're kind of expressing this stuff in a very broad sense, not looking at any individual in the, in the congregation, not dealing with their particular issue with their kids or their family, but looking at this bigger picture. But that bigger picture should, in some respects, connect with the, the very personal things that you're dealing with. So you could say 
that they're just starting at two, two different ends and somewhere maybe meet in the middle. And so some people require the psychoanalyst more than the priest, some the priest more than the psychoanalyst, but they're both kind of like coming from different angles, but looking at something that's broadly similar in their, in their um, perspective on reality. And then Tim says, oh, he says, in other words, can they both offer the same result or is there a significant difference between the transformation at each give? Oh yeah, so I think yeah, in relation to what I just said there, they kind of give the same cure in a different way. But I think I mentioned this in a different part that this notion of the cure, it's the same I think in politics, in economics, in uh, philosophy, um, in psychoanalysis and in um, radical theology. But it's all different. So it's just in politics, you can call the cure democracy. Uh, democracy is where all of the deadlocks of a whole bunch of people is used to kind of produce something positive and hopefully positive. Sometimes it can be negative, but all in all, you try to take all of the contradictions and deadlocks within a society and through democratic procedures, find a way to uh, create a type of unity in difference and movement. So it's all about unity and difference. So that's very different, obviously, from the psychoanalytic cure, which is all of the contradictions that you are as an individual, not society is, but you are as an individual, you find a way of bringing them together in a productive way, which is similar to you know what, what the cure is in this paratheological sense, uh, which is, you know, the, um, uh, you know, you're trying to get rid of the contradictions in your experience of life through pursuing, you know, God or whatever in a way that will fix you to being able to embrace that conflict. So they're all kind of different, but yes, they all share something very, very similar that's going on within them. Okay, thank you so much for tuning in to uh, this part four. Now we're over the hump. We're going into the home straight. Uh, we've got uh, two more parts to go and then we'll have an have a informal conversation uh, on the last week. All right, have a great day. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.